Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast of Latrobe Asia, where we discuss the news, events, and general happenings of Asia's states and societies. I'm your host, Nick Bisley, the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia. Over the past decade and a half, Western democracies appear to have reached a crisis point. Cynicism towards established political institutions is widespread, with the result of the Brexit referendum and the US presidential election the most visible manifestations of this trend. In contrast, the Chinese Communist Party has overseen the greatest advancement in human development history and maintained social stability and cohesion at the same time. Is there something structurally wrong with liberal democracy? And does China have a better model for managing politics in the 21st century? Joining me to discuss these controversial issues is Professor Daniel Bell. Daniel is Dean at Shandong University and a professor at the Schwarzman Scholar Program at Tsinghua University. Daniel is also the author of The China Model, Political Meritocracy and the Limits of Democracy, published by Princeton University Press. Welcome to the program, Daniel. Thank you. So let's start with the problems of governance in liberal democracy. So briefly, what are these in your view and and how do the, the problems like Brexit, like Trump, relate to the kind of underlying structural conditions of of democratic systems of government? Well, you know, it's commonly said of democratic systems, you know, the Winston Churchill quote that it's the worst of all systems except for all the others. And that's meant to be a joke, but it's also meant to suggest that the other systems are even worse. So whatever the flaws of democracies, at least it's better than the alternatives. But he had in mind uh, Stalinism and Nazism. Of course, um, democracies are better than that. But I think if we compare with... Chinese-style political meritocracy, it's not a slam-dunk case. So in the first chapter of my book, I describe some key problems of democracies, and then I compare them with the theory and praxis of political meritocracy, and then I argue that it's not, again, a clear case in favor of, of democracy. My point isn't to say that it's a choice of one or of the other. Actually, if you want my views, I think that there are different morally legitimate ways of selecting leaders. In Western countries, we've settled on the view that one person, one vote is the only more legitimate way. But my, my point suggests that China has an alternative. But I don't mean to suggest that that alternative should replace what we have in the West. I think once you have one person, one vote in place, you can't change it except through the use of, of military force. And the alternatives are often worse, as in, for example, Thailand or Egypt. So any improvements need to be based on this one person, one vote idea or practice. So what are some of those problems? Well, the first is the assumption that voters are sufficiently rational to make informed choices as to who the good leaders should be. Well, it turns out, based on tremendous amount of social scientific evidence that, and most of it comes from the U.S., so that's why I don't pick on the U.S. because I'm from Canada. It's easier to pick (laughs) on the U.S., but that's where most of the evidence is, that voters are often systematically misinformed about their own basic interests and they're prone to cognitive biases and they just have very many false assumptions. You know, there's one famous uh, example where we should reward people according to their contribution to each according to their need. So where does that line come from? And uh, a substantial uh, group, the largest group actually, said it's in the American Constitution. Of course, it's Karl Marx's view of how resources should be distributed in, in higher communism, which he wrote in the Critique of the Gotha Pro. So I mean, just these things are uh, like obviously false views are often widely shared in the populace. So that's one problem. Another problem, and which is more characteristic of bigger uh, societies, and I think size does matter. It's much harder to have a well-functioning democracy in, in large societies, whether it's Indonesia or India or the US. And it's much easier, especially in large 
societies for resources to be captured by a tiny rich elite. And we know that in the U.S. in particular, especially in between elections, you know, in elections people are often active, but then in between elections people are not often as active. And that's where the real financial interest can skew policy makings. And it's getting much worse in the U.S. Again, I rely on social science evidence to make these points. Another problem, which is perhaps a more fundamental one, if you consider issues like climate change uh, as important, is that even in well-functioning democracies, the political system can work well at satisfying the needs of voters. The problem is that many of the policies affect non-voters. So on issues like climate change, you know, what we do now, especially in big countries, will affect future generations. But nobody represents future generations. So if there's a conflict between the interests of the voters and the interests of non-voters, often the interests of voters have priorities. So it's really hard to get things done in the interests of future generations, especially when there's a serious conflict of interest. And lastly, the fourth problem is that any society, especially large societies, are often disharmonious, but elections can really exacerbate disharmony, especially in large societies like the U.S. where there's increased polarization and alienation between different groups of society. And that's partly due to elections, which make the problems worse. Yeah, and we've seen this, I guess, in Indonesia really clearly with the gubernatorial election in Jakarta, bringing some of those underlying tensions between ethnic Javanese and, right. and Chinese to the surface. And you know, there's a lot of concerns about how that may play out in 2019 presidential election. And of course, in Australia, electoral short-termism is a f- something we're deeply familiar with a, with a three-year electoral cycle. Given that I think it's hard to argue that there aren't problems with democratic systems of government, you talk about a sort of Chinese-based, merit-based model. I wanted to sort of tease out what that entails and particularly sort of firstly How is it distinctively Chinese when we talk about a sort of meritocratic system and a particularly Chinese model? What makes it Chinese? And then what are the advantages you think that a kind of Chinese-style meritocratic system presents? I can talk about the advantages. It also has disadvantages, which we can discuss. Like any political system has advantages and disadvantages. But the basic idea is, is not necessarily Chinese per se. You know, it's the idea that the political system should aim to select and promote leaders with superior qualities, superior abilities and virtues. And you have a similar idea, for example, in Plato's Republic. It's not necessarily as mainstream in Western political thinking. But in China, ever since the age of Confucius, over 2,500 years ago, the main debates have been over which qualities matter for leaders, which abilities matter, which virtues matter, what are the best mechanisms for assessing those qualities. Do examinations do a good job of assessing virtue? If not, then what other mechanisms can we use? Those have been pretty much the mainstream debates in Chinese political culture. So what makes the parts that are distinctively Chinese, I think, is first that it's much more, those are the mainstream debates in Chinese political culture. Two, that the recent political reforms in China over the past three decades have involved a revival, again, highly imperfect, of um, a system of political meritocracy. And three, again, it's a question of size. You know, China is a huge country, right? So the main organization which it attempts to implement these ideas of meritocracy, it's called the Department of Organization, and they have different criteria for assessing political leaders depending on what level of government it is. So if it's at relatively low levels, meaning like below the city, then often it's more question of selecting leaders who are good at implementing ideas. But at the city level and above, they care much more about assessing leaders who have ability to make informed policy making. Examinations are different for different levels of government. 
and the sorts of criteria, what counts as good performance at lower levels of government, again, differs on different levels of government. So what's distinctively Chinese, one, is that it has a long history, two, this idea of meritocracy has informed political reform over the past three decades or so, and three, that because of the size of the country, you have different ways of assessing merit at different levels of government. So all, all those things, I think, are, are, are quite characteristic. That said, you have small countries like Singapore. In fact, Singapore is the first country in the modern era that began to use this language of meritocracy as a way of, let's say, legitimizing its political system, or especially legitimizing its constraints on democracy. Of course, Singapore is different because it's tiny, so you're not going to have different ways of assessing leaders at different levels of government. Nonetheless, perhaps because it's majority Chinese, the whole idea of meritocracy resonates more in that context than it might otherwise. So the advantages of meritocracy, and this refers more to the selection and promotion of leaders at higher levels of government. One is that they inevitably have political experience. So nobody like Donald Trump would get through the system who has no political experience. If you're at city level and above, you have to have a proven track record at lower levels of government. At some extent, you know, people say, oh, is it really proven? Is it really meritocratic? That explains who gets what. Somewhere along the way, you have to have a good record of showing that, for example, you've promoted economic growth in your district because in the past 30 years, the main issue has been poverty reduction. How do you get there? The best means is through economic growth. So therefore, political leaders have to be assessed showing that they've had a good track record of delivering economic growth. Two is that the leaders can take a long-term approach to policymaking. You know, on issues like climate change, you know, they say this is what we're going to do in the year 2030. We can be pretty sure they're going to stick to that unless the whole system collapses, which is highly unlikely. Whereas in a democracy, as you know, Obama can have a great idea on climate change and hope it can be thrown out the window once there's a new government in place. So another advantage is that the leaders can spend more time learning about policy rather than, for example, again, in the U.S., if you contrast where many of the political leaders have to spend so much time fundraising, you know, or giving the same speech over and over again. If you had to design an ideal system, that's not what you would want in, in a, in a high-level political leader. You want leaders to learn about history, to learn about economics, learn about international relations, about how cognitive biases might influence policymaking, all those issues. In principle, and we can talk about whether it happens in practice, but in, in principle, those are the, some of the clear advantages of meritocracy. The disadvantages, well, if you don't have elections to throw leaders out of power after a few years when the people are dissatisfied with them, how do you curb their power? You need different non-electoral mechanisms. It's not readily obvious what those might be. So in China, what happened after the Cultural Revolution when there was a disastrous experience with extreme populism and arbitrary personal dictatorship. They said, we're going to have term and age limits for leaders, and we're going to have collective leadership. So it's not one person at top who decides everything. Whether those mechanisms can be long-lasting, we can talk about that later. So the first disadvantage is how to curb the power of leaders, given that you don't have elections as, as a safety valve. Another clear problem with political meritocracy is how do you prevent hierarchies from ossifying, right? Because it's possible that if you have political hierarchies developing, if I'm at the top of a hierarchy, I'm going to assess people based on what I think are my ideas of merit. I want people who are going to be look like me and, and think like me, or even family members potentially, you know. So how then can you allow for fluidity within hierarchies and social mobility? I think there's different ways of doing it. It needn't be elections, but at least that's a problem to be solved, right? And the third one is how do you legitimize the whole system? The problem of legitimacy in an electoral democracy is not so complex, right? 
what gives the legitimate leaders that they have the consent of the people, which is proven through electoral victory. But if you don't have that source of legitimacy, what makes the leaders more legitimate in the eyes of the people? I think it's more complex in political meritocracies because you have multiple sources of legitimacy, right? Nationalism can be one. Performance legitimacy can be one. If they perform well, then they're legitimate. Um, I think meritocracy itself can be a source of legitimacy. If the leaders are viewed as having superior qualities, that could give them some legitimacy. But you also need some sort of democratic source of legitimacy, which obviously won't take the form of victory in an election. So those are some of the problems. You know, I guess that question of performance legitimacy is, has been really crucial to China, its political stability and the remarkable economic achievements of the past 40 years or so. And But certainly critics of your book have said the great China story that we're all familiar with, it's the great story in human development history, in my view. They say, well, that's not a meritocratic system. It's, in fact, authoritarian system that's, that's rife with you know, things like nepotism and, and favoritism and cliques and all that sort of stuff. How do you respond to that sort of critique that says, actually, the success of China, it's not illustrative of the virtues of meritocracy. It's a separate thing and that you're describing a parallel potential system well, okay, so the, the, I guess the two main achievements over the past few decades are one is that about half a billion people have been lifted out of poverty and two, that the country hasn't gone to war since 1979, right? I mean, again, I, I don't always to pick on the U.S., but how many times has the U.S. gone to war since 1979? Apparently at least 14 times. How many times have those have been unjust, which is a really key question. I mean, like we can argue about that. But anyway, can we give credit to the meritocratic political system for those achievements? Well, Obviously, the country not going to war. At least we can thank leaders for having sufficient foresight to focus on peaceful development rather than going to war, you know, or at least spending resources on the military rather than economic development. I mean, again, North Korea would be a clear counterexample, you know, which is really a family-based cruel dictatorship. Both of them are non-democratic, but do we want to place them in the same camp? The other issue, though, is economic performance. To what extent is it because you have leaders who have been rewarded at least partly on the basis of economic achievement. I mean, of course, that's an empirical question to look at, and I think there's lots of evidence for and against. But I think the clear kind of takeaway, you know, empirically speaking, is that at lower levels of government somewhere and up to the city level, political leaders have been assessed according to their ability to deliver economic growth, again, which was viewed as essential to poverty alleviation. Once you go above that city level, then other things matter more, like who you know. But that's not necessarily bad. What do you mean by meritocracy? To get things done, especially at higher levels of government, it matters how many connections you have. If you have many allies and friends, then that helps you deliver uh, policies. And it means that often that you're trusted by people. That can be viewed as a virtue of leaders as well. I guess where there would be uh, an issue is if it turns out that many of the leaders are there partly, if not mainly, due to family connections. Um, you know, as people say, oh, there's many princelings in the political system. If there was truly a meritocratic system, you wouldn't expect that. You would expect people to be, everybody has equal opportunity to succeed, and it wouldn't depend so much on family background. That's true. But note that, again, unlike the U.S., you know, if you get in as president, you can appoint your son-in-law in, as a major political role. You can't do that in China. So there are constraints on the extent to which the political leaders can use their own family members in, in politics. More importantly, perhaps, the leaders who got there now often started their path to power before 
some of the meritocratic mechanisms were put in place, including examinations. So now to get into politics, if you don't go through super competitive examinations to get into either leading universities and or the public service examinations, it's almost impossible to do well. So one would expect that in the next 20 or 30 years, I would predict that there would be a, a decreasing proportion of people who are there, at least partly due to their family backgrounds. And I guess if we think about China today, we know on the one hand, there's that remarkable poverty alleviation story. But on the other hand, you sort of say, what are the problems that that China faces? Certainly, if you talk to senior officials in China, the first thing they'll tell you is we've got a a huge shopping list of problems, things like corruption, growing inequality, concerns about a self-interested political elite, the environment, and the list goes on. Do you think those are a function of the kind of tail end of that non-meritocratic system? Or do you think these are part and parcel of of a rapidly developing economy that regardless of your political system, you're going to have to grapple with? And, and how do you try to square those competing tensions? Well, I think it's it's due because the past 30 years or so, the emphasis was almost solely on delivering economic growth because that was viewed as key for reducing poverty. And the stuff that went was, we can call it the byproducts, this very strong focus on economic growth, they include overlooking massive corruption, overlooking massive environmental degradation, a huge gap between rich and poor. Clearly, those issues are so important. Some of them threaten the very existence of the political system. And why has the emphasis been on corruption as a priority over the past two or three years? I think it's directly linked to the idea of meritocracy as a legitimizing ideal of the whole political system. Because if you have an electoral democracy and the leaders are viewed as corrupt, there's a safety valve. You can vote them out of power, right? But if the leaders derive their legitimacy, at least partly by being viewed as having superior ability and virtue, well, let's look at the virtue part. Minimum condition of virtue is don't be corrupt. Don't misuse resources for your own interests or your family interests. So if the leaders are viewed as corrupt, it means that system is not meritocratic. So they have to deal with corruption in order to, let's call it, save the whole political system. Other issues matter a lot too and matter more in some areas than others. Like environmental issues would matter more in places where there's already a substantial level of wealth and there's less of a need to focus on poverty reduction. And this makes the whole system more complex because now leaders need to be assessed not just on ability to deliver economic growth, but of course, one is don't be corrupt, you know, so there's much more insist now on virtue rather than ability. And two, in some place where there's less poverty, like a city like Hangzhou is highly developed now, and the leaders are being assessed going through their ability to deliver economic sustainability. How do you do that? How do you measure that? It's not obvious, right? The ways of assessing leaders now are becoming more complex and plural than they used to be, which I think, to be frank, is a good reason, too, why there's going to be a need for a more open society in the future, because now there's going to be the need to argue about what the priorities should be, and to a certain extent, you, you need to get the people on board more so than you did before. Which is a useful sort of segue to the question of, of Xi Jinping and the sort of competing faces, if you like, of Communist Party legitimacy and Communist Party governing structures. He's, he's often described as one of the most powerful leaders in China since at least Deng, if not possibly Mao. Some believe that he is seeking to further entrench his power this year through the National Party Congress and getting his people in place and possibly even staying on beyond the 10-year the norm that has been the kind of check. I mean, we don't know. It's, it's speculation. Right. Just wondering, given your particular take on the Chinese political system, how you assess Xi so far, where you think he's going, and what that says a little bit about the kind of model that you're developing about the Chinese political system. So uh, under the previous form of leaders, you know, Hu Jintao uh, as president, there were nine members of the Politburo, and no one member had 
this overriding power that arguably Xi Jinping seems to have now, which in principle might be viewed as a good thing, but in practice it meant that each leader had vested interests in, in a certain sector of the country and they had veto power over any changes in that area, which meant that it was very hard to get things done. Corruption, for example. They reached a point where corruption, among other issues, were really threatening the whole system, and there was a need for much stronger leadership than before. So the standing committee was cut from nine to seven, and Xi Jinping, as well as Wang Qishan, you know, who's arguably the number two guy, were given much more power to focus uh, in the first few years on corruption as, as necessary to save the political system. The next five years, hopefully, there'll be much more emphasis paid on other issues, including economic reform. Now, I still think it's collective leadership. It's still seven people, and it's not like the Maoist era where, mm. where Mao would, would really you know, exercise almost sole authority on many of the issues. But what's going to happen in the future? There's possible scenarios. The, the, the really negative scenario is that Xi Jinping would concentrate power in his hands, have total authority, almost similar to Mao, and there would be increased repression in society that would last for like 20 or 30 years. I think if China does go that way, it would be very dangerous. But I, I think that scenario is quite unlikely. Let me just describe a more optimistic scenario. After 10 years, maybe Xi, Xi Jinping will have some power, often behind the scenes, power less formal, a bit like what Deng Xiaoping had. But there's still more decisive uh, decision-making than there was under the previous Hu Jintao government and a relatively more open society in many ways. That would be good. Maybe something in between that is going to happen. I don't know what that could be. A mixture of increased repression in some areas but increased openness in other areas. That might be another possible scenario. So you've lived in China for many years. Do you think that the more optimistic scenario is more likely? or Of course, nobody knows. But the way to assess progress, partly it's having a more openness. At least in education, even though we read about some constraints on what you can teach and so on, I see a general trend towards much more meritocratic mechanisms as well as more openness to the rest of the world. That's a sector I'm most familiar with now, right? Actually, I work now as dean at Shandong University, so I'm more intimately familiar with, with higher education than I used to be before. I think the big problem now is that the anti-corruption drive has gone almost too far, such that now it's becoming really hard to use resources because you have to fill out so many forms and worry about uh, misusing resources that there's almost too much emphasis now on the bad use of resources and not allowing people to explore and innovate. Part of why China was relatively successful. There was a lot of innovation experimentation in the whole systems, and public officials were often rewarded according to their innovation experimentation. But now people are keeping their heads down because of this worry of being caught up in the anti-corruption drive. I see it even in the, in the education sector now where I have lots of resources at my disposal, but it's very hard to spend them, literally, because it's so complex. I think in the future, once there's a move away from this reliance on fear to deal with corruption, and there's more institutionalized mechanisms in place, including higher salaries for public officials, more clear separations between economic and political power, more openness of the finances of the political leaders and their family members, as well as, I think, more mechanisms that rely on moral education as a way of changing attitudes rather than, than just fear. And I th those mechanisms all take a long time. I think then there's going to be more innovation and experimentation in the whole political system, including the educational sector, 
And again, the way of assessing progress is not just whether the society becomes more open. Remember, what's really distinctive about China compared to other societies, like I'm from Canada, you know, is that has 2,500 years of historical, you know, written record. And, and intellectuals and reformers are deeply immersed in history. Much of the 20th century was really the tradition of anti-traditionalism, blaming tradition for what went wrong with China. Now there's much more effort to retrieve the desirable parts of China's historical record, drawing on that as inspiration for thinking about the future, and reforming the educational system so that people are more familiar with Chinese history and culture. There's so much exciting work going on in that area as well. You can't really describe it as openness, but you can describe it as as a revival of tradition and reinterpretation of tradition in interesting ways, and that make people ultimately more civil. And I think there's more of that. I see it already compared to 10 years ago, and I expect that trend to continue as well. So on those two issues, you know, openness and revival of tradition, I'm still a bit more optimistic than most people. Well, that's all the time that we have. Thanks for being part of the program, Daniel. Thank you. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast of the Trobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to Asia Rising on iTunes or SoundCloud. And while you're there, leave a rating and a review to help us spread the word. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.